0: Hey, welcome to the podcast. My name's Harrison. I'm the pastor here at Kingdom Church. We are so excited that you clicked on to this message. This is the fifth and final part of our series, The Problem of God. I want to share a Bible verse with you as we get started. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says this. It says, You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything... I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and stomach for the food. This is true, though someday God will do away with them both. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They are made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. We're in part five of our series, The Problem of God, The Problem of God. What we have been doing in this series is we have been looking at problems and objections that people have when it comes to God's things that causes unbelievers to stumble and things that causes Christians headaches, questions, problems. So far, we've looked at the problem of science in week one. In week two, we looked at the problem of God's existence. How do we know if God is actually even there? We looked at the problem of the Bible we look at the problem of evil and suffering. And today, this is our fifth and final week. But we want to let you guys know that uh, this series has been so awesome. It's created so much dialogue, so much questions that we want to let you guys know that we are going to continue this series another time at a later date uh, because there's more questions, more problems that we still want to uncover. And as a church, we're dedicated to making it easy for people to follow Jesus. And so uh, we want to continue to answer questions. So uh, it's going to be probably like a year from now or so. But I just want to let you guys know in case. Some of you guys are like, man, my questions haven't been answered. Uh, we're going to continue this series one day and eventually. Um, but today, what we're going to be doing is we are going to be looking at our last problem uh, for this series. And the problem is this. We are looking at the problem of sex. The problem of sex. You guys are like, why did I sit by my parents today? Uh, <laughs> Uh, this uh, this problem is an interesting problem because I believe the problem of sex poses a problem for those in the church and those outside the church. And one of the problems I think it poses is that for people outside of the church and people inside of the church, a lot of them actually have the same views on what Christians think about sexuality. They have the same perception of what God says about sexuality. And so this morning what we were doing is we want to examine this problem. For those uh, who are unaware, uh, we live in a culture and a world that is dominated by sex. Dominated. How many of you guys watched the Super Bowl last weekend? I was innocently watching football, then all of a sudden at halftime, uh, I was forced to watch Adam Levine become a male stripper. <laughs> I didn't ask for it, he just started to do it. And some of you ladies are like, I, I wasn't complaining. We have no choice as a culture. We are surrounded by sex. It's everywhere that we look, everywhere that we go. And I think there's a reason Adam Levine took his clothes off, because he knows that sex sells. Sex sells. And so our culture is dominated by sex. It's around us. It is everywhere. And so the problem we are looking at today is that oftentimes when it comes to Christianity, there is this perception and there is this idea that God is against sex. That God is anti-sex. I call it the Christian myth. God is anti-sex. And that is what we want to look at this morning. Because if the world is dominated by sex, that's all we see. It's all around us. And people have this perception and this belief that God is anti-sex. We live in this time where everyone believes sexuality needs to be free. It's, It's however you feel, however you want to express it. And yet when Christianity comes on board, people think that God wants to repress sexuality. And so we have this problem. And what I want to look at this morning is is what does God actually say about sex? What does God actually say? What does the Bible actually say when it comes to our perception of sexuality? And we have this idea of outside of the church, what outside of the church people think. But what I want to suggest this morning is I think that the same ideals have crept inside the church. For a lot of people who have been raised in church, there's this idea that sex is dirty, sex is gross, so save it for marriage. And so people inside the church and outside the church have a similar outlook on sex. I remember that uh, when I first uh, became a pastor, I was engaged, and I ran into a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in a long time, and I told him the two things. I said, I'm a pastor, and I'm engaged. And I just remember this look of confusion on his face. He's like, How does that work? Because you guys don't have sex, right? Like, How's that going to work when you're married? And I had to explain to him that we will eventually be having sex once we are married. Um, But he had this perception that that Christians, that pastors did not have sex. And this posed a big problem for him because he's from a world that is dominated by sex. And so why would I want to be a part of a religion? Why would I want to be part of a group that is anti-sex? And so this is the problem that we want to look at today. Um, basically, what we're going to be doing we begin, there's going to be three basic things that we're going to break down, three basic ideals that people have about sexuality. And what we want to do is we're going to look at these ideals that people think about sexuality and we're going to compare it to what the Bible actually says about sex. You guys ready for this? Have I said sex enough in the first 10 minutes? We're just getting started. Number one, here's the first ideal, sex is bad. Sex is bad. And for a lot of people, this is what they believe is the Christian idea, that Christians believe sex is bad. It is something that we should not talk about, something that we should not do. It is private. It is bad. Now, for a lot of times in the history of the church, and we have to be honest, there has been times when the church has, been, has done a poor job at, at getting rid of this stereotype, there has been times in the history of the church where we have actually pushed this stereotype forward. There's a man by the name um, of Alexander uh, of Clement. And uh, in around 200 AD, he came up, he was a Christian theologian, he came up with the idea. And what he basically said for church people, he said, sex has one purpose and one per- purpose only, and that is for procreation. He said, if you're not doing it for procreation, it is actually Sinful. Now, another man came around about 50 years later by the name of Origen, another Christian theologian, and he took it a step further. He said, sexual desire is actually the root of all evil. And so he castrated himself. He said, that's, that's it, that's done away with, it is evil. And so, I'm just giving us a glimpse into church history because we need to see how we got to where we are today. In the Catholic Church, there's this idea of the Virgin Mother Mary. And a lot of times in the Catholic Church, they, they, they elevate this idea of Mary's perpetual virginity. What that means is that Mary was always a virgin. If we read the scriptures, they tell us that Jesus had other brothers and sisters, and so we know that Mary was not always a virgin. But there was this idea uh, that, that went around through centuries that Mer- Mary was a virgin. And so virginity began to be looked at as the utmost, that which is holy, And so this idea and this stereotype, sex is bad. That's where it was fueled. Now, I don't believe for a second that the Bible teaches that sex is bad. And what I want to do in a moment is I want us to look at what the Bible actually says about sex. But this is just one viewpoint. Sex is bad. Number two, the second viewpoint is that sex is appetite. Sex is appetite. What this means is this. Sex is something that is just strictly biological. It's something that we do. If you've been with us in this series, we've been looking a lot at evolutionary standpoints and the naturalistic standpoint. And so from an evolutionary standpoint and a naturalistic standpoint, the idea for sex is that sex is appetite. It's just something that we do. It's something that we bio- biologically need to do. It is for procreation. It's to extend or expand and strengthen our gene pool. And when this, with this view in mind, there's really no such thing as morality when it comes to sexuality because it's something that we biologically need. And so if you look at things from a naturalistic point of view when it comes to sex, that's where we come up with this idea that like, well, if there are more females than there are males, and the males need to expand their gene pools, well, then it's a free-for-all. And we've seen this throughout history. We've seen men with many wives. We've seen leaders and kings with concubines as as history has gone out. But even today, this idea that, that sex is just appetite runs rampant in our society. It's just something that we do. Uh, the other thing is the biological need. It's something that we as humans need. It is like breathing, right? You guys all need to breathe. Sex is the same thing. We just, we have to do it. If the sex is appetite model is true, it doesn't necessarily take into, take into consideration feelings. It doesn't take into consideration emotions. It doesn't take into consideration love, If sex is just appetite, that's why we see things like sex trafficking. That's why we see things like pornography. That's why we see things like prostitution. Because if sex is just appetite, then the appetite has to be fed. And so I'm just giving us different views on sexuality. If sex is appetite, morality does not have a place. Sex is just something that we do, and it's a biological need. Now, what I want us to see is this sex as appetite often comes in stark contrast to how we actually live. Because if sex is appetite, marriage doesn't necessarily make sense at all. Because within marriage, you're confining yourself to one person. And if you only have one partner, specifically speaking for expanding your gene pool, you're limiting yourself. Richard Dawkins, uh, he's an outspoken atheist, um, but he's also married. And so someone asked Richard Dawkins one day, they said, Richard, they said, why are you married as an atheist? His response was actually quite interesting. What he said was this. He said, I know what I'm doing is an aberration. He's like, I know it goes against biology. He's like, but it's just a choice I made. And this is what he said. He said, it's un of me to do this, but I have done it anyways, which was in total contrast to how he lives and what he actually preaches. He got married and he confined himself to one woman. And so that is a question we have to ask ourselves. Why do so many of us do this? If we are just strictly biological creatures, if we're just here on the earth, uh, just living out our lives as, as organisms, why would we ever confine ourselves to one person? And so this is what the sex is appetite model looks at. Number three, the third view on sex is that sex is God. Sex is God. And I I think that this is sort of where we're at as a culture. Uh, Sex is the most important thing. Sex sells. It's what we talked about earlier. And and the idea is this. Every person needs it, so let's just go out and get it. And sex is God and sex is appetite are two things that are very closely connected to each other. They're two peas in a pod. And if, if every man needs it and every woman holds the key to it, then we might as well monetize it. And sex is our God. Sex is that which is most important. I was looking at statistics um, this week, and, and one thing that was so shocking was this. There's, there's a, a popular pornographic site, and their stats came out for 2018. And this is what they said. They said in 2018, their site was viewed 33.5 billion times for an average of 92 million views per day. Here's the craziest part. In 2018, 1 million hours of content was uploaded to the website. In order to watch 1 million hours of content, it would take you 115 years straight. That's how much was uploaded in the last year. And that is why I say that as a society, as people, this is sort of where we live in, right? There's millions and millions of people that have come to this conclusion that if sex is God, it essentially is appetite, It's something that I need, it is my God, it is that which I strive for. And so that is what we see. And that's the society that we live in. And underlying this idea that sex is appetite and sex is God, there is this belief that our bodies are simply a commodity. Our bodies are a commodity. It's just something that we have, we are just materialistic beings, so we might as well do something with it. We might as well take advantage of it. How many of you guys have Instagram? Uh, I, uh, and I don't have statistics for this, but I just know it for so many people. They are, on, they are on that platform and they're making money from it simply by showing their bodies. And a lot of times I understand it's under the guise of fitness and all that kind of inspiration stuff. But they know deep down inside what everyone else knows that sex sells. And if I can just, if I'm just a physical being, if I'm just a commodity, if I'm something that I can sell, why not just sell my body? Why not make something from it? And now, I'm not here to pass judgment on anyone because I know that certain people do this, but, and they'll defend it and say, you know, it's just fitness, we're trying to inspire people. Um, but I'll just say this, there's no man following a female uh, bodybuilder slash workout person that is looking at her for inspiration, uh, they don't care about her booty buster workouts. It's something else. <laughs> but underlying this idea is that our bodies are a commodity. It's just something. We are something. And so what I've been trying to do what I, as we begin this message, I'm trying to show us the predominant worldview that people have when it comes to sex and sexuality. That we are just str- strictly material beings and our bodies are a commodity. They are something to be used. Now, if we were to... Contrast by that with the biblical view. What does the Bible say about sex? What does the Bible say about sexuality? I think, plain and simply, the Bible would teach that our bodies are not a commodity. Our bodies are not a commodity. We are so much more than just physical beings. You see, if you ask anyone who has ever been sexually assaulted, if the pain is finished when the sex finished, they would tell you, no, that's not true at all. The pain far outlives the experience. And what that is showing us is that we are more than just physical beings. We're spiritual beings. We're emotional beings. And so when it comes to sex, God's view on sex is the whole. It's not just simply the body. It's the whole. It's the physical. It's the spiritual. It's the emotional. You see, this idea that our bodies are a commodity, it doesn't take into consideration candles. It doesn't take into consideration lighting and the mood. It's just whenever wherever because our bodies are commodities but what the bible is teaching what i want us to see today when it comes to sex and why the christian version of sex is actually the best version of sex i, I want to show us that today so uh in first corinthians chapter six the verse we looked at at the start paul is writing to a people and he's writing to a culture much like ours it's a culture that is dominated and saturated by sex In Corinth at this time, people were doing whatever they wanted to do. They were sleeping with their stepmoms, their sister. It was just, it was anything goes. And so Paul is writing to them. This is what he says. Because they had a saying. And the saying was, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. So what Paul is saying is this. Paul is revealing the truth. In life, we are allowed to do whatever we want. We look at the world, we look at the statistics that I just showed you. God will not curb your sexual appetite. He allows us to do whatever we want. And so what Paul is saying, because the people in Corinth had this saying, I can do whatever I want. Paul says, yeah, you can do whatever you want, but you need to understand something. You can do everything, but everything you do is not necessarily good for you. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that it's good for you. Moving along in verse 15, he says this. He says, don't you realize that your bodies are actually a part of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one with her body? For the scriptures say, two are united into one. So what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, sure, yes, you can do whatever you want. You can go and you can fulfill your sexual appetite. You can sleep with and and be with whoever you want. But you have to realize just because you can do something doesn't mean it's beneficial. Just because you're allowed to do something doesn't mean it's the right decision. Uh, Growing up, I guess when I was in high school, my brother had a Jeep Wrangler. And uh, it was a piece of junk car, but he loved that thing. And... uh, one thing that the Wrangler could do that was kind of cool is like he would sort of do some off-road stuff because it's like a Jeep, it's 4x4, four four, and so he's not very outdoorsy, so we'd like literally just pop curbs and stuff like that. And he'd be like, that's the Wrangler for you. Um, but the thing about Wranglers, the thing about Jeeps, is that is exactly what they were designed to do, right? Like they were designed to go off-road. So I'm driving on Stony Plain Road a few weeks back, wintertime, and I see this car... On the, on the road and apparently this car had decided that he was going the wrong way and so instead of waiting it out instead of just going down the road this car decided that he was going to go over the median like where the grass is and uh, now I'm watching because we're kind of at a standstill traffic and this guy's like in a like a piece of junk car and I'm like what is he doing and uh, I'm like, there's no way he's gonna make it. You know, we've all seen cars like cars go through medians. Like it's happened before. But I'm watching this guy. It's the middle of the winter. I was like, there's no way that he's gonna make it through. And so he he goes in there, and as soon as like literally as soon as all of his tires get in there, he's just completely stuck. <laughs> he's just completely stuck, and he gets out. And then I'm watching him, and he gets out of his car, and like he's just stuck. And I'm like, what an idiot. Why am I telling you this story? You see, there's times and there's seasons where perhaps this car could have made it through. Perhaps the car could have gone there. Because I can see this guy's reasoning because I've thought of it at times too when there's traffic and I want to just peace out. Because we're in a car and cars have wheels and cars have engines, so cars have the capacity to do it. They probably could do it. There's a chance that they could do it. There's a chance that they could do it and they could come out unscathed. But just because you're able to do something doesn't make it a good idea. Just because you can doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And so when it comes to sex, this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I don't have to give you guys a biology lesson. You guys know that you can do anything. There is no one and nothing that will stop you. But just because you can do anything, it doesn't mean that it's a good idea. And so when it comes to sex, this is what I want us to understand. We're going to look at myths in a second. But the idea is this. God is not against sex. God is just against bad sex. What is bad sex? We'll we'll dive deep into that. But God's desire for us is for us to have good sex, to have sex in the proper context. So here's the myth I want to look at. Myth number one, we talked about earlier, Christianity is anti-sex, Become a Christian, give up sex, give up your sex life. I want us to see what the Bible says about sex and sexuality. We don't even need a Bible verse for this. Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. Does anyone know, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. Does anyone know how God created Adam and Eve? He created them naked. Did you guys know that? He created them naked. And the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve were created in perfection. And so what I take that to mean is that Adam had it going on. Eve had it going on. Forget about Adam Levine. I want Adam and Eve. Come on. I don't know where that came from. But the Bible tells us they were created naked, they were created in perfection. And just in case their biology did not take over, just in case they didn't know what to do, God's first command to them, he says, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, he says, Adam, get some candles, set the mood, be fruitful and multiply. The very first thing that God says to his creation is have sex. Now, understand this because some people take it like, well... God said that because he needed them to populate the earth. And so, therefore, the only purpose for sex is procreation. That's what God is saying here. Be fruitful and multiply. However, there are clues that we're going to get into um, as to why that is not true. And one of the biggest clues that I know that God's purpose for sex was not simply procreation is because of our biology. Now, I'm about to say a word in church that I never thought I'd ever say in church. But I'm doing it for strictly spiritual reasons biology. God created us. There is something on the woman that God created. It is called the clitoris. And that's the last time I'll say it in church. (laughs) It has one purpose and one purpose only. It is a hundred percent pleasure. There is no reproductive function for it. And God created it and he gave it to the woman. And now why would God give that to the woman, that which has no purpose, that which has no creative potential? I believe the answer is quite simple. The reason that God created us like that is because God created us to have pleasure. Yes, there, there is an, and there's a, there's a, um, an aspect of sex that is procreation. It's how we move on. But God also intended it for pleasure. God gave it to us. You see, God is not anti-sex. God wants us to have the best sex. There's a book in the Bible called The Song of Solomon, Uh, For those of you guys who have ever read this book, the Song of Solomon is all about the the sexual love between a man and and his partner. Now this book is so steamy that uh, tradition and history tells us that Hebrew boys, when they were studying the Torah, they were not allowed to even read the Song of Solomon until they were 13 years old. Because I was like, you guys can't see that yet. But it's in the Bible, and it's there because God wants us to celebrate our sexuality. He gave it to us. And one of the things, as you dig into the Song of Solomon, you will find out that most English translations do not even do it justice for what the words actually were in Hebrew. Because like English translators are like, I'm not sure I should be writing this stuff. I'm translating the Bible. But this is what one scholar says. He says, most English translators hesitate. This is from Song of Solomon chapter 5. He says, most English translators hesitate in this verse because the Hebrew is quite erotic. And most translators cannot bring themselves to bring out the obvious meaning. This is a prelude to their lovemaking. Get this. There is no shy, shamed, mechanical movements under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other, feeling no shame, but joy in each other's sexuality. This is in the Bible. And now the reason I'm showing us this is because I want to put to bed this myth that God is anti-sex. That God is against sex. I told you before, God is for good sex. And here's the thing. There's this idea that God is a killjoy God. That God just puts rules and regulations. When it comes to sex and sexuality, God has actually only given us one rule. And it's a context. He says sex and sexuality should only be within the context of marriage with a man and a woman. That's it. Simple. Nothing else. And so God's desire and God's purpose for us is to have sex within the confines of marriage. And so this brings us to myth number two. And myth number two says this. Okay, Christians, you guys only believe in sex within marriage. Well, sex within the context of marriage is uh, repressive. If you're only going to have sex within marriage, you're actually missing out. You're missing out on what God has for you. I remember uh, Christy and I, we got married like, kind of young for today's standard. And when we were engaged, so many people came up to us and they were like, man, like, you guys ready for this? Like, it's game over. Like, there's no one else you're ever going to be with, no other partners. Like, you really want to give up all of that for one person? And, and it's funny because there's this idea and this, I think this perception that goes around that sex within marriage, if you're, if you're just going to do that, you're missing out on something. And I think all of us can recall conversations we may have heard and people that we say, and a lot of times what happens is that perception becomes reality. We hear so many times, if you want to get married, your life is over. If you want to get married, your sex life is over. Just don't do it. And what happens is this perception becomes reality. Sex within the context of marriage, sex within the context of how God created it, is repressive. It's not the best it could be. The best is the single life. The best is to sleep around. The best is to to plant seeds wherever you may go. So what I want to do is I want to look at some facts when it comes to marriage because we're putting this myth to bed right here today. Uh, Fact number one, couples under the age of 24 have sex on average 132 times per year, which is every two to three days. Couples under the age of 30 have sex 111 times by average about every two to three times two to three times per week and now on average this is all the age mixed together on average people married couples have sex 58 times a year a little over once a week and we'll explain that statistic in a second why it just kind of gets lower as you get older but uh we want to compare it to something because the myth is that the single life is the best life get out there do you live life Uh, Single people on average, single men on average have sex twice a month. Single women on average have sex once a month. And again, it's, I mean, you're single, it's a lot harder to find someone to sleep with. It's pretty simple. But this idea and this myth is that if you have sex, if you are married, you're going to miss out on something. But what statistics tell us is that when you get married, you're actually going to get more. Come on, somebody. One of the other things that most, uh, a lot of couples do in our day and age now um, is cohabitating, meaning they, get, they do not get married. They'll just live together. Um, another statistic says this with cohabitation. Uh, cohabitating couples compared to married couples. Uh, it said on average, cohabitating couples have 20% less sex per week than a married couple. So again, this is just statistics. This is just statistics. We're going to keep going. Um, let's talk about pleasure. Here we go. Uh, woman. Themselves, on average, married women say that they uh, orgasm 75% of the time. You guys are like, what did I sign up for today when I came to church? (laughs) Never married women, 62% of the time. Now, that's just strictly pleasure, and obviously we can see that married women have more pleasure, statistically speaking, than a person who's never been married. But this is important for both male and female because for males, one thing that sex studies are finding is that when males their most uh, satisfying sexual experiences are when the women are also satisfied. And so what this is telling us is that in, in marriage, when women are more satisfied, that means the men will be more satisfied. So there was a study that was done um, by the state of university, the state university of New York and the University of Chicago. It's one of the largest sex studies ever done, and they came to one bottom-line conclusion. The most pleased, emotionally, and physically satisfied people were married couples. That was, the, that was the end-all, be-all of their statistics. That's what they came to find out. And there's just so many more interesting things as you go along that we can go through. it. There's things about how men uh, and women who stay in marriage when they say that they wanted to end it, how after five years, it was something like 60% of them said that they made the right choice by saying it. That in essence, what these studies were saying was that married sex and marriage is actually a good thing, and that goes against what the common perception of our time is. Now, there is a dark side, because you guys saw the the statistic um, of it goes down as you get older. Um, In this study, they found out that 15% of married couples in the last six months to one year have not had sex. Now, A lot of people look at that stat and say, boom, that's marriage's fault. See, marriage is repressive. See, what God's standards are not the best standards. But there's something we need to know because this, there are many people who are married, Christian and non-Christian, and that doesn't mean whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. It does not mean that you're actually living out how God intended marriage to be. So Paul gives advice on this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says this. He says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. All the men said, Amen. But get that. Hold on, men. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So there's two things that we learn here. Number one, what Paul was saying here was extremely, extremely progressive for his time. This is a time when women's rights were like, and men were up here. But what Paul is saying in this passage, he's saying men, he's saying your body is not your own. It's your wife's. You see, in that time, it was just that the wife's body was her husband's. But Paul says, no, 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 it goes both ways. His is yours and yours is his. Yours is, don't look at it, don't, Don't replay that in your head. might not have made sense. But you see what he's saying here. He's saying no matter what happens, when it comes to sex and the statistic that people have not had sex between six months and one year, what Paul would say, what Paul would say is that you are not doing marriage right. Paul says, he says, if either of you guys, if you do not want to have sex, let it only be for a season. Let it only be for a time. He's like, but then you need to come together again so that the devil may not tempt you. You see, God's ideal and God's ultimate desire for us is to have sex, but it's to have good sex. And it's to have sex within the proper context. And you see, the reason I wanted to share with you guys these statistics is because every single day we are filled with lies. We are filled with lies that tell us God's ideal is not what's best for us. If you follow what God has to say, then you're gonna miss out. But you see, friends, what I'm trying to say when it comes to the problem of sex is that God's ideal for us is simply that we have sex, and we put sex in its proper context. Because anything in its wrong context will always come with pain. I said it like this, misplaced passion always ends in pain. We've looked at all these different ideals of sex, and I think within every single ideal, there is a nugget of truth. Because the passion within us, the sexual desire within us, that is true and that is real, and it comes from God. But what God is trying to do is God is trying to get us to put that passion in its proper place. Because misplaced passion always ends in pain. I'll, I'll illustrate it to you guys like this. I brought some props today. You guys ready for this? Anyone know what this is right here? It looks like a brick. I actually, I didn't know what it was when I bought it. I knew what it was. I didn't know what it looked like. This is actually a log. It's, it's one of those burning logs that it burns, it burns quite well. So, I'm just gonna make a fire right here on the stage with that log. Two logs. And three. Now, does anyone have a lighter I could borrow? No one? You got a lighter? All right, how many of you guys think I should light these logs on fire? Who wants me to do it? Yeah, I do. You, guys are, you guys are sick. <laughs> Hold your lighter. I'm not going to light these logs on fire. Because you guys see, that if I were to create a fire on this stage right here, number one, we rent this building. We do not own it. <laughs> so if we lit this place on fire, that's the end of Kingdom Church. Here. But I want to show you guys something. I'm trying to illustrate something. If I were to start a fire right here, Is the fire the problem? No. The The fire is not the problem. The problem is not the fire. If I were to create a fire right here, the problem is not the fire. The problem is that I have not created anything to contain the fire. I have nothing to control it. I have nothing to stop it from spreading. You see, fire in and of itself is not a bad thing. It can never be a bad thing because fire is life-giving. But here's what I know about fire. The same fire that lights your guys' homes in the middle of the winter if you have a fireplace or that keeps you warm and toasty at a campfire, that same fire also destroys millions and millions of acres every single summer in B.C. The same fire that gives you life has the power to take it away. But fire in and of itself is not a bad thing. Fire can never be a bad thing. The problem is when we don't have anything to contain the fire. When we do not put parameters in place to stop it from spreading. And so what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to illustrate is when it comes to sexuality, sex is never a bad thing in and of itself. Because if God created it, there's no way that it could be bad because everything that God created is good. But what God wants us to do, and God's only desire for sexuality in our lives, is that we put it within its proper context. Because if we do not have parameters in place in our lives, if we have nothing to contain it, if we don't have anything to contain the passion, it will always end in pain. You see, friends, I have a belief that that sex is one of the most powerful things that God has given us. It's a gift that God has given us, and it's a gift that we are to experience within the context of marriage, and that is what these statistics are telling us. They're saying over and over again, God is coming out true. What he said is true. Boundaries are a blessing. Boundaries are a blessing. This fire right here, it's freezing outside. It's absolutely freezing outside. If, it was, if we were on 97th Street right now, downtown, this fire could have the capacity to change someone's life to give them warmth. But if it's put in the wrong context, if there's no parameters in place to keep it from spreading, it has the power to destroy. And, And friends, I wonder how many of us in this room, and I just want to invite the band up because we're closing. How many of us in this room have ever experienced the blessing and the gift of God in the wrong context? Because I have a belief that the more powerful that God's gift is, the greater that God's gift is, the easier it is for it to get twisted. The easier it is for us to experience it in its wrong context. And so as we close up this message, as we close up this series, I just want to encourage us and I want us to to just take God at his word. That is essentially, we've been doing this whole series. We've, we've just been trying to see what God has said. What does God actually say? What does the Bible actually say? Who is he? And what we have found is that the problems that we have are not as big as we think they are. And so when it comes to sex, when it comes to sexuality, friends, I have a belief that God's desire is for us to enjoy it, for us to have a lot of it in the proper context. And when we do that, when we put that passion in its place, when we put that fire in its place, it will be life-giving. And it'll be something that, that we can experience, something that we can enjoy. And for anyone in this room, if you ever experienced uh, this passion in the wrong context, you will know the pain that can come with it at times. You'll know the heartbreak that can come with it at times. But the beauty of who God is, that God is a creator, and God is a redeemer. And so anything that we've experienced, anything, that, that, that the pain that we have felt, God has the power to give us a new beginning He has the power to heal that pain. and friends God wants us to experience His blessing in the proper context Thank you so much for listening to this message and this series we hope that it encouraged inspired you and answered questions that you had about God hey if you've not checked us out in person we would love for you to join us head over to kingdomchurch.ca and you will find everything that you need and so much more take care